How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That deserves the applause of the entire globe. I see that, Mark. Welcome really back, good. Dr. Joe. Welcome back for another beautiful week. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. Actually, you know, all excited because Unleashing the Power of Respect is coming out in a couple of weeks and we've got a cover and, and uh, we've got amazing endorsements and doing all sorts of, of great interviews and podcasts. I'm, I am really excited. It's going to be great. It's it going to sure be great. I, I'm looking forward to it. That's awesome. Because actually that leads right into the introduction for our guest, who's today's guest, Dom? See if I, oh, I remember. He majored in chemistry and philosophy at Haverford College before receiving his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. He's professor of neurology at Boston University, lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School, and chief of cognitive and behavioral neurology at the Veterans Affairs Boston Healthcare System. His career combines education, research, and clinical care to help those with memory disorders. Wait a minute. This is familiar. I remember this guy. Yeah. Dr. Andrew Butson. Yeah. Hello, Dr. Butson. Welcome Hi. back. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for having me back. Oh, we are so delighted. People uh, remember Dr. Dr. Butson had written a credible book called Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia. We were honored to have him as a guest then. It wasn't just, it was what, several months ago, right? It was relatively recent. And as we were talking, he reminded me of his, was it your first book? Uh, first book for the public, correct? First book for the public, Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, uh, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. And I really was hoping that you would come back and talk about that because it's so important. So thank you for coming back. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be back. It is wonderful. So where do we start? How did you get the inspiration to write seven steps to managing your memory? Yeah, it, it's really because so many people would uh, come to my office to see me for memory problems or their, their family would bring in their loved one for memory problems. And they knew that they were losing their memory or that their parents were losing their memory for years, but they thought, oh, well, isn't it just normal to lose your memory? And I realized that I needed to get the information out to the public about, you know, what is normal memory loss that we expect to see with just normal aging? And how is that different from the memory loss that one experiences with Alzheimer's disease? And you know, I thought this is the, you know, the way to do it is to sort of write a very practical, simple, straightforward book that explains these, these differences so that 
people don't have to be worried that they're losing their memory and not know if it's normal or not, or, or worried about their parents. Uh, I wanted to sort of give people the tool that can empower them to sort it out themselves. And it is such a timely and topical book because so many people are worrying about it. I just want to read a couple of things just from the preface. You walk into a room to get something and forget why. Uh, you spend too much time looking for your keys, glasses, wallet, or purse. Have you ever wondered or worried whether a slip of memory could indicate the start of Alzheimer's disease? Would you like to know whether doing crossword puzzles or playing computer games can improve your memory and stay with Alzheimer's? I mean, these are questions that people ask, and it's wonderful to know that there's a resource where they're answered. So it's fantastic. And, and just so folks know, the book follows the story. Uh, and can you talk about that? Because I think that that is absolutely yeah. such a brilliant tool to get the message across. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually very proud of that. Uh, so we included two stories in the book, uh, one of a man named Jack and one of a woman named Sue, both of whom are concerned about their memory. And, you know, you talked earlier in the show about, you know, a lot of people are angry today. Well, uh, I think it's sort of in my world, a lot of people are afraid. A lot mm. of people are fearful. And I wanted to give people, you know, both sort of a friend to sort of go along with on the journey. And you can sort of experience sort of the ups and downs and things like that with them. It makes it a little bit, you know, sort of less lonely. It also makes, I think the book, and you can tell me if you agree with this, I, it just makes it easier to read. You know, you can read it a little bit more like a novel. It's not just like a textbook. Uh, because, you know, sure, there's some straight facts. And in fact, if people want to skip the stories, they can. But to me, you know, the stories, they illustrate the points we're making, and they just make it sort of fun to read the book. I absolutely agree. There is something about the narrative. I mean, we are human beings that have been telling stories around fires and places for, for millennia. Okay, so let's let's dive right in. The first step, remember, this is seven steps to managing your memory. First step, learn what is normal memory. Let's, yeah. let's go. And so in this step, we talk about, you know, what are the changes that can occur at just in normal aging? And I, I just briefly, we talk about three things. So we use a, uh, I, I like to use a filing system analogy when I explain it. And if your memory is like a filing system, your frontal lobes are like your file clerk. And so it's the frontal lobe file clerk's job to take information from the outside world and to then put it into the file cabinet. And when we want to retrieve a memory, the frontal lobe file clerk walks over, opens up the file cabinet drawer, looks for the memory that we're looking for, and pulls it out. But as we all get older, our frontal lobe file clerk is getting older too. And there's three things that happens to our older frontal lobe file clerk that makes it difficult to remember things just as part of normal aging. So the first thing is our older frontal lobe file clerk cannot hear quite as well as they used to. And because of that, 
as part of normal aging, information needs to be repeated a couple of times in order to get it into the memory store. Another thing that happens to our older frontal lobe file clerk is they do not move as quickly as they used to. So it can take a little bit longer for us to retrieve that memory. The third thing that happens is they do not see quite as well as they used to. And because of that, you can imagine that as they're looking through the different memories, squinting at them, they may need a hint or a cue in order to find the memories that they're looking for. But importantly, in normal aging, as long as the memory got into the file cabinet, it should be able to be retrieved, even if it takes a little bit of time or a hint or a cue. So that's the changes in normal memory. Now, step two is determine if your memory is normal. And here we talk about um, the changes that occur in Alzheimer's disease. And the way I like to explain this is by continuing with our filing system analogy, but now we're gonna look at the file cabinet. So the file cabinet is another part of your brain. It's actually the hippocampus which is deep in your temporal lobes. And it is, uh, in Alzheimer's, what happens is that the plaques and tangles damage and ultimately destroy the file cabinet. And I think about it as if there's a big hole in the bottom of the file cabinet. So if there's a hole in the bottom of the file cabinet, you can have the best, most efficient file clerk in the world pulling in information from the outside world, putting it into the file cabinet. But what's going to happen? It's going to disappear down the hole, never to be retrieved again. And when that happens, even when information is repeated, even if you give a bit of a time or a hint or a cue, it cannot be retrieved. And when that happens, we call it rapid forgetting because the information is rapidly forgotten and rapid forgetting is never normal. It should always be evaluated. And this types of problem, these types of problems lead to patients with Alzheimer's getting lost, even on familiar routes. It can lead to them losing things, misplacing things very frequently. People have to buy a new cell phone because they left it somewhere. They have to cancel the credit cards because they've lost that wallet. Um, and it also leads to repeating questions and stories. I mean, anybody can be halfway through telling a story to a close friend and you say, oh my God, I told you this already, didn't I? You know, and anybody can forget the answer to a question and ask it again. But when there is a pattern of repeatedly asking the same question to the same person again and again and again, or telling the same story over and over and over again, that is not normal. And that's usually due to that rapid forgetting that we were talking about. Now, step three is understand your memory loss. And here we sort of demystify 
all these terms that are always thrown around both by doctors, but also like um, people in the media. Like we talk about what's Alzheimer's, what's dementia, what's mild cognitive impairment, what's vascular dementia, what's senility, what's hardening of the arteries, like what do all these different terms mean? And let me just take a minute to explain the most common question I get asked, which is what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? And so dementia, right, is a general category. <clears throat> um, so anything that causes a deterioration of thinking and memory to the point that it interferes with day-to-day -day function, we call that dementia. And Alzheimer's is one type, or if you like, one kind or one cause of dementia. And I'll just mention this one other term, mild cognitive impairment. I think that term is out there in the media too, and people are not exactly sure what it means. So if someone has mild cognitive impairment, it means number one, that someone's concerned about the memory. It can be the individual themselves, it can be their family, or it can be the doctor. The second thing is that when the individual undergoes pencil and paper testing of their thinking and memory, yes, indeed, a problem is found. So the concern is actually confirmed by the pencil and paper testing. But the third thing is that the individual's day-to-day -day function is normal. And if their day-to-day -day function is normal, then by definition, they do not have dementia. Now, if you follow people with this mild cognitive impairment over time, what you find that about half of them do end up declining and developing either Alzheimer's disease or a similar type of dementia. But that also means the other half don't. The other half either stay stable or their memories actually improve over time. You might say, how does anybody's memory improve over time? Well, if their memory loss was due to depression, something that I know you understand very well, if their mood lifts, their memory can't get better. Another very common cause of memory problems are medication side effects. And if the individual works with their doctor and their medications get adjusted, their memory can improve. Now, step four is treat your memory loss. And here we talk about all of the uh, FDA approved medications that can actually help to improve uh, people's memory. And in a nutshell, the class of medicines that I'm particularly excited about are the medicines that can help to boost up the levels of acetylcholine in the brain. I bet some of your listeners have heard of these medicines. Some of them could be taking them. These are medications like uh, Dinepazil, whose brand name is Aricept, Rivastigmine, whose brand name is Exelon, and, and Galantamine. So all of these medications help to boost up thinking and memory. Now, from the perspective of the individual and their family, what these medications can do is they can turn the clock back on memory loss by six to 12 months. So I can actually make somebody's memory like it was six months ago, or maybe even a full year ago. And the sooner that they come in to see me, 
the more likely it is that I'm going to be able to turn the clock back on their memory loss by a full 12 months. And the simple reason why is there's more brain cells that are still living that the medication can work on. And this is one of the important reasons that we wrote the book. Because again, I don't want people to sit at home and worry about their memory and watch it get worse when I can give them a medicine and make their memory better. And like I said, the medications work better uh, the earlier they come. Now, step five is the one that people are usually most excited about. This is modify your lifestyle. And here we talk about diet and exercise. And the diet that has been shown in over 7,500 studies to improve not only your brain health and your memory and reduce your risk of Alzheimer's, but also help with diabetes and with cancer and like almost every type of disease is the Mediterranean menu of foods. So we're talking about fish, olive oil, avocados, fruits and vegetables, nuts and beans, and whole grains. And from sort of a sister diet called the MIND diet, we can pull in poultry. So we can add uh, chicken and turkey uh, to that list as well. So those are the things that are good to eat. Now, of course, everybody says, okay, well, what are the things that are not good to eat? And then I have to pause and say, well, I hate to tell you, it's almost everything else, right? So red, move, red meats, uh, fried foods, fatty foods, um, uh, most pastries and sweets, white bread, white rice, white flours, sugar sodas and sugar juices and diet sodas and diet juices, all of those things I put in the category of once in a while foods, not every single day foods. But before everybody gets really depressed and thinks, oh my God, I can never have dessert again. I did want to remind your listeners that chocolate in small amounts has been shown to benefit thinking and memory and mood. But of course, what type of chocolate is this gentlemen? What is it? Is dark it chocolate. Dark chocolate. That's right. The darker, the better, right? Because it's the cacao that's actually good for you, not so much the sugar and the butter and the milk that they put in it to make it sweet and creamy. Thank you for that, Dr. Budson. I think many people are very grateful. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I know all your listeners out there know that exercise is good for you. But exercise is so good for the brain. It's just fantastic. Exercise can do so many different things. It can uh, reduce your risk of heart disease and strokes. And strokes are a major cause of memory loss. As I'm sure you know, Dr. Joe, it's a natural antidepressant. And in fact, in my view, it's actually better than a lot of antidepressants that are currently being uh, prescribed today. And exercise also improves your sleep. And we have learned that sleep is so important for memory. One reason sleep is important for memory is that if you're tired, right, it's hard to pay attention. And if you can't pay attention, you're not going to remember things. Another reason that sleep is so important for memory is that 
when we are forming new memories in the hippocampus, our new memory file cabinet in your temporal lobes, they only stay there for a little while. And overnight, while we are sleeping, the memories become attached to the outer layer of the brain called the cortex. And that is what allows our memories to stick around for a lifetime. And we need to get good quality sleep night after night in order to have this connection to the cortex takes place so that we can hold on to those memories uh, forever. But the most exciting thing about exercise and memory, I want to tell your listeners, is that when we do aerobic exercise, it actually helps to release growth factors from the brain that help to grow new brain cells. And this effect is so strong that you can see it on an MRI scan in as little as six months. So, you know, people sometimes say like, Dr. Budson, is there some magic pill out there that can really improve my memory? I say, yes, there is. Exercise truly is the magic pill. It's good to know. It's good for your brain cells. Good for your brain cells. So step number five, is there a step number six? Yes. So step six is strengthen your memory. And I uh, start by talking about another really common question that people ask me. They say, you know, Dr. Budson, you know, is it good for me to do crossword puzzles or Sudoku or those like computer games that uh, they're always advertising? And my answer is, if you do crossword puzzles and Sudoku and computer games, you will get better at crossword puzzles and Sudoku and computer (laughs) games. It simply does not translate to overall uh, memory function. But there are some things that do, and those include social activities, which in fact, I would argue, and I do argue, that is what our brain evolved to do. And when we engage in social interactions, the whole brain is lighting up. When you do crossword puzzles or Sudoku, you know, a little part of it's working very, very hard but you can get the whole brain going with social interactions. Now, if you wanna do something with your mind that's gonna help you, it should be new, something different, something that stretches yourself out of your comfort zone. So people sometimes ask me like, well, I play a musical instrument, does that count? And I say, well, that counts if in addition to playing the same tunes you played for years, you learn new tunes or maybe really stretch yourself and play a new genre of music. And the last thing uh, for general health is um, having a positive mental attitude. And I'm sure I don't need to convince you, Dr. Joe, that this is so important. And we think it works for all the obvious reasons. People with a positive attitude are more likely to be social and outgoing people with a positive attitude are more likely to take care of themselves, eat right, and exercise. Now, the other thing that we have written into the book, we have a whole chapter on different strategies. We can help people remember, you know, grocery lists. We can help people remember where they parked their car. We actually have a whole section on that. We can help people remember names when they're at a cocktail party and they're meeting new people. We can also help people remember the names of people they've known for 30 years, but are having trouble thinking of those names at the moment. And then we have a whole chapter on different memory aids that people can use. 
different physical objects like calendars, planners, to-do lists, pillboxes, uh, phone apps to help their memory. And then finally, step seven is plan your future. And in this step, we talk about like, well, what do you do if you have some memory problem? How do you keep working if you're working? How do you keep driving? How do you keep doing your hobbies? But also how to do all these things safely. And we talk about how do you know when is it time to retire from that job? How do you know when is it time to hang up the keys and let someone else do the driving? So those are the seven steps to managing your memory. Wow. Now, Dr. Button, you gave us some nice strategies for helping uh, maintain your memory and keep it healthy. What are some of the things we, you know, and I know you talked about the fried food and such, but what are some of the other things that uh, are connected to it that we could stay away from? Yeah. So, you know, I think the things you want to sort of think about in general is, you know, to try and see if you can sort of live the way people might have lived, say, you know, 100, 200 years ago, right, where you had to walk places commonly, you know, like jogging is good or running is good. I like to run, you know, bike and do different things. But you don't have to be crazy about exercise. Just make it part of your daily routines. You know, if you look at some of those uh, quote unquote blue zones, these are places in the world where people actually live a long time, routinely live into 100 years of age. These are people who are, you know, walking every day to get their groceries from the market. You know, they don't use a grocery delivery service or, you know, or things like that. And, you know, they, you know, eat, you know, healthy sort of fruits and vegetables. And sure, they might have meat, but it's more of sort of a flavoring or it's a little bit of meat. It's not like the portions that, uh, in my opinion, too many Americans, you know, just have giant portions of steak. It's like, you want to have a steak? Fine. Have a small amount. Just don't have a massive uh, amount of these types of foods. And, you know, we all can do it. We can do it even in 2022, we can incorporate a little bit of exercise into our day, you know, one way, you know, one way or another, you know, park your car a little bit further away from the office. So you have a built in, you know, maybe 10 minute walk, you know, back and forth. Don't try and get the space next to, you know, where you're trying to go. If you have a few minutes, park your car away, do little things, take the stairs rather than use, uh, the elevator, take the time to go shopping, buy some fresh fruits and vegetables, things like that. But what is that? What, what is the science behind that? Is it because your, your veins and your blood flows more uh, fluidly if you're exercising? What, what, what is it that makes exercise good for your memory? Yeah, you know, that is still being worked out. And there, there's a lot of good research that is trying to, to sort this out. Um, one thing, one theory is uh, that because, you know, most of the activity that people did, you know, say like, you know, 10,000 years ago, it would be when they were traveling to either, you know, find, you know, fruits and vegetables and sort of hunter gatherer or they're, you know, they're hunting 
they're hunting game, uh, something like that. And the further that person would go, the better their memory better be in order for them to find their way back. So, you know, this is a hypothesis that's, that's you know, not easily proven, but there has been a study that you may have heard of that they actually looked at London cab drivers and people would argue the city of London is the most complex, you know, uh, street system in the world. And the cab drivers who have mastered what they call the knowledge and get their cab licenses, they actually had larger hippocampi. So their hippocampus on both sides was larger uh, when they had this knowledge. So we do think that it may be related to how important it was to get around. And when we uh, moved, it was mainly moving from place to place and we needed to remember. Interesting, interesting. And, and you know, from an IM point of view, we're, we're talking a lot about the biological domain here and how we can make these small changes to, to basically improve uh, and, and help us not go down a certain pathway. But I'm curious, why is there so much more Alzheimer's and, and, and dementia? Is there more or are we just recognizing it more? Yeah, so for sure, we definitely are recognizing it more. So we used to think that Alzheimer's was a disease that uh, affected young, younger individuals. And when I say younger, I mean in their 40s and 50s. The, the patient of uh, Alzheimer, I think, was, uh, was 57 years old. Uh, uh, August Dieter uh, uh, was her name. And um, so when Alzheimer did his pioneering papers in 1907, it was thought, oh, this is a cause of what we call pre-senile dementia, meaning mm. sort of younger age uh, dementia. And it was only really in the 70s and 80s that people were looking at the pathology and saying, you know what? This sort of senility, senile dementia, this isn't normal aging. This is just Alzheimer's disease that is actually coming. So some of it is just what you said, that we now recognize that it's more common. The other thing that's happening is that as all of us doctors in medical science are helping people to live longer, healthier lives, uh, people are not dying of heart disease and cancer at the rates that they used to. So people are now routinely living into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And Alzheimer's is more common as people get older, just like cancer and diabetes and heart disease are more common as uh, people get uh, older. The other thing that I think is relevant is that as people got, uh, you know, we live in the industrial age and people stopped walking everywhere. Even I was talking about the advantage of living 100, 200 years ago, people are, you know, they're sitting on their butts you know, all day long, or they're sitting in their cars for, you know, an hour, two hours commuting back and forth. It's not a healthy way to live. So I think it's the combination of increased recognition, people living longer, and people living a more sedentary uh, life and eating more, you know, quantities and all that stuff. So, so with that hypothesis, do you think that we may see an 
increase in Alzheimer's-like dementia now that you have basically remote work that uh, you don't even need to go to find a parking place anymore. You just do everything from home. What do you think? Well, I absolutely, uh, I worry about that. I, I definitely uh, do. I, I, I'm hoping again that, you know, whether it's from my book or other sources like your great show, that people can get the message that, you know, even in a pandemic, even if you're working from home, you have to take time out of your day to, uh, to be able to, to get it and do things or, or people can have this problem. You know, I do want to uh, encourage people to let them know that, you know, let's say, you know, you're in the middle of your life, you're in your 40s and 50s, and you think, wow, I've not been doing the right thing for years. There are studies to show that if you make a change today, and you exercise more and eat healthy, in one Scandinavian study, they actually showed that even people who were destined because of family history to get Alzheimer's disease, they were able to go another 11 years mm. from age 79 to 90 uh, without the, the disease uh, because of making lifestyle uh, differences. So yeah. Yeah. The people can take charge of their lives and reduce their risk of Alzheimer's. So I'm, you know, it's, it's an incredible discussion. And, and folks, I, I really hope you do get the, the book, especially if, if you're worried or you're worried about somebody else. But this does lead to the sort of that IC domain question, I suppose. Why do people worry about this so much? What do you think, Dr. Butson? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's in part that as we've done a good job with heart disease and cancer, if people get these problems, you know, you think, well, I don't want to have them, but I, I'm feeling, feeling good that my doctor is going to be able to, to treat it and take care of it. But with Alzheimer's, I do think people know there's no cure, right? Mm. It's an incurable disease. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is, you know, let's face it, we have a disease that actually robs people of their memories. First, their ability to form new memories. Then they will lose older memories. Finally, they lose their own sense of identity. It's a scary thing. It sort of robs people of their personhood uh, to some extent. And that's why, you know, I want you to all join me do good brain health, try and reduce your risk factors. And, you know, if you're interested, uh, participate in research. There's all sorts of Alzheimer's research uh, going on. There's clinical trials of new medicines in my, in my laboratory. We work on uh, developing new diagnostic techniques to diagnose the illness earlier and uh, easier to make it easier for primary care doctors uh, to do that. And in my lab, we're also looking at new strategies that can help people with memory problems to still live independently, you know, in full and rich, fulfilling lives, even along with their memory uh, problems. What if you could share some of those? What are you working on? Yeah, absolutely. So in one study that we did, we found that by using pictures, even people 
who you know, had Alzheimer's dementia were able to remember things uh, better. Now, it turns out you know, that whole picture is worth a thousand words thing, it, it really is true when it comes to memory. And uh, everyone remembers pictures better. But for patients with Alzheimer's, presumably because they're both having trouble with their memory and language can deteriorate in Alzheimer's, the pictures made an even larger difference. So if you are uh, someone who's having trouble remembering things, or you are a, a family member and your loved one's having trouble remembering things, if you uh, give them pictures to remember, and it's so easy today, you can take pictures on your phone, you can show them things on the computer, it'll be easier for them to remember. Another thing that we learned in one of our studies is that if you simply have somebody take the time and think a little bit about whatever it is they want to remember, um, they can remember it better. So what I mean by that is we asked people to think about each item, say, on a shopping list and relate it to something that was personally relevant uh, uh, to them. So don't just think of like sugar. Think about the fact that, you know, when I was a little girl, I remember working with my mother cooking you know, and I reached up this special, you know, sugar canister that we only took out, you know, for special, you know, uh, treats or something like that, you know, to make an association with each one. And then they were able to remember things uh, much, much better. So there are ways to help people's memory. That's interesting, that, that last example, especially. So is there a correlation between the longevity of the memory? I mean, you, you, the example you give is something that I remember as a child, as opposed to remembering to get the sugar from, you know, Starbucks. Exactly. So yes, you're exactly right. And because those longer memories, particularly for people with memory problems, those longer memories are, are, are more hardwired and, and are in there st more strongly. If you link something you need to remember today to one of those older memories, that's how you're really going to hold on to it tightly. Exactly. Really interesting. Such an interesting, interesting concept. Hmm. Um, and off air, we were talking a little bit about the difference between memory loss and distraction. Um, that you know, sometimes we just we just forget where we put something. Uh, some people would get worried. That, does that mean I have the beginning of a process? So, can you talk a little bit about that? Abstraction. So, in order for us to remember things, we have to pay attention to them. So if you are parking your car and you are talking to your friend, let's say on your cell phone, and you know, like a good friend, you're really engrossed in that conversation. That's where all your attention is. And you're not paying attention to where you parked your car at all. When you come out of that store and you go back to find your car, you're going to have no idea where that is. And that is totally normal and mm. not something to be concerned about. And that's why the cure for uh, finding your car in a parking lot is 
to take a minute, even if you're on the phone, say, oh, hold on, hold on two seconds. Let me just pay attention to where I parked my car to really look where it is. If you like, what I like to do is to use a little mnemonic, a little memory trick to help me remember. So if I'm parking my car in a garage, um, and let's say it's on the third floor, and it's like in the C row or the C section, something, something like that, I would picture three cats sitting on top of my car, right? Interesting. In the E section, I'm going to think of three elephants sitting on top of my car, perhaps squishing the hood or something like that. The more visual you can make it, the sillier you can make it, the more outrageous you can make it, the more you will uh, remember it. So being absent-minded, like an absent-minded professor, you know, you're not paying attention, that's okay. The problem is when you do stop and pay attention and then you still can't remember it, even with a hint or a cue, that could be a little bit uh, worrisome. But if you're not paying attention, that's okay, and you forget it. So typically in this scenario, you make that mistake once and you and you try to find a solution around it. Hotel room, same thing. What I tend to do is take a picture of it, right? But my question revolves around the phone. Is there any studies showing that people, by using their phone, looking at their phone, are actually deteriorating their cognitive abilities? Because they're taking a shortcut? The shortcut um, or simply the way it's, it's treating your mind. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know of a study, and I've thought about it. I think it would be hard to do a study. Yeah. But there's no doubt that we have dramatically changed our use of our memories because of our smartphones. I mean, like when I grew up, I could remember the phone numbers of my, you know, eight closest friends like that. You asked yeah. me their phone numbers, bam, I could give them to you. Yeah. I got no idea. I could barely remember my own phone number, right? It's like, you know, who needs to remember phone numbers? Right. So we change what we remember, but what do we need to remember today? 15,000 usernames and passwords, right? <laughs> right. That's what we need to remember today. And um, so I actually think we're working just as hard to use our memory today as we did before. We also need to remember how to use 15,000 apps and 15,000 websites and all sorts of other things. Um, we just so maybe the opposite. Today. So, you know, we're coming towards the end of the show and we, we ask our guests this, the I am, remember the four domains interconnect your home, social, the biological, and the IC. We've been talking a lot really about all four, but because the domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. Dr. Budson, what small change can you recommend to our audience so they can help themselves with their memories? So I thought about this and <laughs> what I recommend is if you make a decision to improve your health, improve your memory, I want you to commit to it. I don't want to hear any of this, well, I'm going to try to exercise more, or I'll do my best to you know, eat healthier. It's like none of this try stuff. All you need to do to make a difference in your life is to say, I'm going to do it, right? It's up to you. I'm going to do it. That's all so you need to say. So it's not if, it's when. Exactly. When you make the decision, not if you make the decision, when. Yeah. Then figure it out. Yeah. 
and, and the second truth of the I am. Uh, you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Andrew Butson, what kind of influence do you want to be? 20 seconds or less. I try to be a good coach, sort of part mentor, part guide, part cheerleader. That's what I like to be, a good coach, help people along, show them the right way, and let them know if they're heading off in the wrong direction. Fantastic. Thank you so much, folks. We'll be back with the Dr. Joe Show. Don't forget, we'll see you here next week. Thanks, Dr. Butson. Thanks, Ari. Thank you for having me.